Hey, welcome to Monday Post, the post-sermon post Sunday recap from Normandale. It's Mason, and uh, I'm here to recap yesterday's sermon, which was on John 2, which was Jesus turning the water into wine. Now, in the Gospel of John, Jesus has just begun his public ministry, coming out, letting people know, hey, this is where I'm at. I'm going to start getting disciples. And so he's at this wedding that uh, some family, I don't know, they were connected in somehow. His, his immediate family was connected to these guys. And so his mom was invited. He was invited. He brought his few new disciples that he had. We know he has had at least three or four at this time. And so they were all at this wedding with him. And uh, the people who catered the event didn't bring enough with them. And so it was a big uh, social faux pas for them to run out of supplies. And so Mary comes to Jesus and says, hey, they need more wine. And so eventually Jesus does the miracle and turns water into some wine for the celebration of the wedding feast. Um, so famous passage, uh, I'm sure you've heard of it or, or probably have, um, not least of which, because in Christian circles, like it's a significant, significant thing that Jesus made an alcoholic drink for a party. <laughs> and, uh, and so it's something we'll, that's something we'll talk about here in just a second. But, um, the structure of the sermon was centered around these four main points that kind of pulled out of the text because the, the, you have the miracle itself of Jesus turning water, physically water into wine in that instant, um, but these, the, John calls these miracles signs, not miracles, because they're meant to function as a parable, function to tell us something about who Jesus is and what he's here to do. And, uh, and so this one, we, we pulled out a couple points out of this text, uh, which is what does Jesus provide, uh, which is cleansing, purification from sin. How does he provide it through the cross or his hour? Uh, how do we get it? By coming to him on the basis of who he is, not out of anything that's within us to uh, be worthy of getting something from Jesus. And then the fourth one is, where does it take us? Which is uh, to ultimate joy, ultimate celebration with him. If we take his cleansing, then we get to be with him at his wedding feast, where he's marrying all of us, the church, uh, to where we're going to have a relationship with Christ that can be described as in the closeness of a marriage. And so, uh, to where we'll be one with God, which is a really awesome idea, a really awesome future that's awaiting us. And so, that's what this miracle, this sign is pointing us to. And it's a really cool one for Jesus to begin with in this gospel, for this to be his very first miracle, because it tells us who he is, what he's here to do, how he's going to do it, and where he's going to take us to be. And, uh, and so it's, it, it just makes total sense that this is where he's going to begin for us, as opposed to beginning with some, you know, you know, something we would think was cool, like, uh, you know, raising someone from the dead or something like that. He began here in this subtle way, but really in this subtle miracle, it is uh, all expansive explanation for what he's doing. And so, uh, man, it's, it, I thought it was really, really helpful. I thought it was really good. I enjoyed preaching this. I enjoyed studying it and preaching it. Uh, now, one of the biggest influences on this sermon was uh, Timothy Keller. Uh, you'll hear me quote him all the dang time uh, when I'm preaching. Uh, he is a pastor, if you're unfamiliar, he's, you should become familiar because he is just one of the preeminent voices in uh, American Christianity. And, uh, and so he is a pastor or was a pastor in New York City. He, restarted, he started Redeemer Presbyterian Church in 
Um, and so he, he was the pastor there up until 2016, 2017 when he retired. Um, but he's still writing and, and working and stuff like that now. But um, his books, his sermons, everything is just stellar that he writes. And so there was a sermon that he preached on this text in 1996 called The Lord of the Feast. And when I was in college, I got a copy of that sermon, and I just listened to it multiple times because I thought it was just so good. Um, and, and so I, 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 when I came to this text, I knew that sermon, I knew his points, I knew where he was going. And so it was a real struggle actually for me to write this sermon and not just give you exactly what Tim Keller says. Um, and, uh, and so for, for several days, I was trying to get that out of my head, trying to figure out how to, how do I preach this and not just, you know, quote Tim Keller the entire time. Um, but if you listen to the Lord of the Feast sermon, and then you listen to mine uh, from yesterday, you will hear a lot of overlap. And at times, there, there are times in there in which I quoted him verbatim, um, but I tried to make that explicit uh, when I did that in the sermon because I don't want anyone to think that I'm plagiarizing. Um, you know, Some people, that's not that big of a deal when you're preaching, but to me, I kind of want to quote sources. Um, just, uh, I don't know, integrity's sake, I think. But uh, but yeah, significant overlap. And so his his... Uh, he actually, I, I got my ideas for these points from him. And, uh, so he has, uh, who, who did Jesus come to be? What did he provide? How does he provide it? How do we get it? And so I shifted it up just a little bit to fit how I was wanting to approach the text, but very similar styles. Um, but what I did this week actually, so check that out. I think it's excellent. I think you should listen to it. Yeah, so it's again, his sermon, 1996 called the Lord of the Feast, Tim Keller, um, but he, but I went back when I was trying to get that sermon out of my head. I was like, I need to hear from other people. I need to read some other sermons, read some other stuff to to get other ideas about how other people have approached this text to preach it, so I can ha- so I can like move out of the Tim Keller mold and into the Mason mold. And uh, and so I, I started reading and and I, and I read uh, I, I searched and actually Tim Keller has preached four sermons on this and each one of those times was different and so it was helpful to read those different styles in which he he preached on he preached on one in 1990 one in 96 one in 2005 and one in 2014 um, but then I was reading other guys so I read Charles Spurgeon a couple sermons of his on this text and then uh, another guy named George Whitfield who was a contemporary of like uh, John Wesley. And uh, uh, 1700s uh, is when he was preaching. And so um, uh, he, when I was, and another one is John Chrysostom. I quoted him at the beginning when we were talking about uh, our need to pray to the one who brought out this miracle. And then we'll go to explain it. We need the one who did the miracle to help us to understand why he did the miracle. And I I loved that point um, at the beginning of his sermon. And so, sorry, we're getting a drink. Uh, but here's an interesting point. It's something that I did not intentionally did not bring out yesterday in our sermon. So the fact that Jesus made wine. And now, in some faith traditions, Christian traditions, that's not that big of a deal. Um, you go to a Lutheran church or something like that, like it's not a big deal. Go to Episcopalian, not that big of a deal. No one cares. You come to a Baptist church and you say that our Savior turned water into wine, and that can get people feeling tense. Um and because we, there's been a predominant culture in the Baptist world in which there's a, been a, uh, at least among the leadership uh, of Baptist churches throughout the last you know 100, 200 years, um, if not longer, of, uh, of pushing for strong abstinence. 
And, uh, and so there's kind of a don't ask, don't tell policy uh, when you come to Baptist churches. And so that, that's something that I'm personally trying to kind of do away with. Um, but, uh, and so when you come to this text, you feel tense. And so you've had, a, you read some commentaries. I've actually got some commentaries in which there are some guys who will claim that Jesus just made uh, grape juice, you know, here. It was non-alcoholic grape juice. And, and you cannot... That's that's not a legitimate point. Like that, it's that's you know it, it, I'm sure it was different than the you know if you go to Walmart and buy a bottle. It's I'm sure it would be different than what that is. But but nonetheless, the text tells us that it was alcoholic <laughs> because the MC of the whole party was like, yeah, you brought out the good stuff. Most people don't bring out the good stuff later because people are too drunk to recognize that it's good stuff, you know? And so he was recognizing that, yeah, this had the capability of getting someone drunk. Um, and so for us to act like he didn't do that, I think that does a disservice to the text. It's, we're kind of, you know, putting Jesus in this little box of saying, you know, Jesus, our Jesus wouldn't do that. And so therefore we're not going to let the real Jesus do that. You know, and it just doesn't, that doesn't make sense. That's, that's not legitimate to, to try to follow that mindset. And so we have to, here's the thing, Jesus came and he was perfect. And so we have to take him as he is, or has he revealed himself. And, uh, and there's going to be things about him that we like and things about him that we don't like, but it doesn't matter ultimately to what, what we think, because he's the God, he's the one who sets what the standard is for what's good. Is we have to trust him in that, and so. Uh, but when I was reading uh, one of those sermons uh, by George Whitfield, he was speaking into a culture that um, his background was. He was from England, but he was preaching in, in New England. Um, but his background in England is it was a, a culture that was taken over by gin, and it just created a wild, unruly, mean culture. And, uh, and he saw the effect that alcohol was having, um, where people were just making these homebrews, and, and, and he saw the effect that it was having on their culture, and so they were just hated it. And so he and John Wesley, these other guys, were preaching into that culture, and were getting ridiculed for it, but they were doing it anyway. And, um, and so in his sermon, he, he hinted at this, he's like, he, he was wrestling with the fact that Jesus made this wine, and then but also the, the negative effects of those who are turning to alcohol in destructive ways. And so he's, he's trying to be pastoral in this. He's like, but recognizing that Jesus did do this at this party, but then also saying this does not give us a license then to be willy-nilly uh, or, or use this as an excuse to go be partiers because, you know, Jesus was a partier. And, and he's ex- absolutely right um, uh, because the text does not call us to, to do that. Um, and so I think the Bible, I think you have to take it where it's at. Like, so what, what Jesus does here is he, he is at a celebration for a wedding feast and he provides alcohol at this, at this place. And so I think it's justifiable for us to say, well, if Jesus did it and he drank it, that means it's permissible. And I absolutely agree with that. But I think you have to take the also the warnings of men like George Whitfield and Charles Spurgeon and and also to look at there's other places in Scripture to where it really talks very sternly about your need for wisdom as you partake um, because the Bible is very clear 
that um, that as you take it, if it leads to drunkenness, that is absolutely sinful and absolutely unwise. And so that's why at certain times, Paul uses a comparison for for living wisely and, and pursuing Christ and putting him in the forefront of your life. He compares that to like being sober. And he says, don't be like those who get drunk in your faith. Um, and he's like, there's, there's, there's strong wisdom in, in being very conservative or being very aware of how you use alcohol, when you use alcohol, and the amount you use of it. Um, and so I think there's this both in, in it, um, in the text. And so um, I don't know. That, I felt like that was something that uh, I did not. I did not address that yesterday, and I didn't do it intentionally. But um, this is an opportunity to kind of bring it up again. And so, in case you kind of felt the tension in your own heart or life, um, yeah, that's legit. Um, so, yes, Jesus did make it, and yes, you can drink it um, according to your conscience, what the Spirit guides you to be. Um, according, you know, if you have a background with a, a abusive father who who abused alcohol, then it's probably wise for you to stay away from it. Um, um, and so, um, but in, in any case, yes, it's permissible, but I think there is the question of, is this beneficial for me in the moment? And is the amount that I'm drinking beneficial for me and for my family? And so I think it calls for wisdom for us. Um, and so I don't know, take that for what it's worth. That's where the, that's what I, I'm thinking the, the Bible goes or that's where it takes us. And so, uh, nonetheless, I thought this text was great. I, I really enjoyed it. Now, next week, we're on to Nicodemus um, and talking about being born again of the Spirit. And so the Spirit's role in us being born again. And and uh, and that's also where we get the passage of John 3.16. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to hit all of that this next week. Um, I'm going to line it out this afternoon and tomorrow exactly where we're going in John chapter 3. But that's where we'll be. And, uh, and so I'm excited about that. So, hey. Thank you guys for being with me uh, this morning or this afternoon, whenever you're listening to this. Um, But yeah, I'll see you guys next week.